Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, we expect our leaders to do a lot of things. We expect them to be digital visionaries, to be technical problem solvers, to be strategists, to be great people leaders, to build phenomenal teams, and to be fabulous coaches. But, you know, we never really stop to say, what do the specialists, the world-class folks that focus on just one of those do? And one of the areas we never talk about is how do you actually coach and coach well? So I want to take a page from some of the best sports coaches, actually one specific sports coach, to understand what that's going to teach us as business leaders about coaching. And I think you're going to find out quite a lot because their livelihoods ultimately depend upon coaching brilliantly and, of course, winning. But the coaching comes first and the winning comes with that, as you'll see. Now, today we're going to look at the practices and philosophy of one of the all-time best college basketball coaches, John Wooden. And for those of you who know me, I'm a Duke University grad, and I'm a fan of Coach K, so I don't say that very lightly. So (laughs) that's our subject for today. Our guest and the specialist is Lynn Guerin, and Lynn is CEO of the John R. Wooden course, and he's president and head coach of his family-owned coaching, training, and performance development fan firm, Guerin Marketing Services. And for the last 20 years, he's had the unique privileges of partnering with legendary UCLA basketball coach John Wooden and the family. He's co-author of Coach em Way Up, Five Lessons for Leading the John Wooden Way. You can learn more at his website, coachemwayup.com. Lynn, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be uh, with you today, Wanda. Excited to be here. Me too. I'm excited Uh, to talk about this uh, for a host of reasons. So first, why? Why do you care about John Wooden and coaching and teaching people the philosophy behind his work? Well, uh, my whole life work has been about helping companies uh, bridge the gap between uh, performance and potential. And uh, I think Coach Wooden's uh, life lessons and his wisdom and his coaching principles takes that whole idea to, uh, to an even higher level. I, I would say even a, a, a life-changing uh, level. So, you know, there's so many reasons to care about who he was and what he did, but maybe even more importantly, how he went about doing those things and accomplishing those things. Yeah, I, I think there's, I think we're going to see that there's a lot in that story. I was just talking to a senior woman today in a company who will remain nameless, but it's a household name, so you would all recognize it if I said it. And when she took over her current C-suite job, um, she got a lot of criticism from the CEO about not getting rid of some slackish performers on her team. And her comment was, they have all been here a really long time. They've all delivered something good. And if I can't get them to the place where they're performing in the right way, it's a failure of me as a coach and as a leader rather than a failure of them. And so she held in to hang, you know, to kind of keep 
pushing this agenda in spite of some intense criticism and was right. But the interesting thing is she was right at the end of the day. So I think you're right that we look for the performance, but we often underestimate that bridge to the potential. Okay. For people who are not basketball fans and who have no clue who John Wooden is, can you kind of just give us a little tour through who he is and why we should care about him? Yeah, I'll give you a quick thumbnail. Uh, It's hard to believe that he hasn't coached a basketball game since 1975. He walked off the the floor of a Final Four championship game in 1975, retiring at the age of 65, having won over uh, nearly 650 games at UCLA, uh, coached at Indiana State uh, prior to that, and actually was a high school coach for a few years in uh, South Bend, Indiana. Some really interesting stories connected to his high school years, particularly as you look at uh, inclusion and diversity. John Wooden was one of the very first coaches uh, to be working with uh, Black American players uh, at a time when he, literally the Ku Klux Klan uh, was still holding rallies in South Bend, Indiana, where he was coaching. Um, but Coach's remarkable career at UCLA was 27 years. Took him a long time uh, to win his first national championship, 16 years, as a matter of fact. But he liked to say that when he got it, he seemed to get it pretty good because then he went on an unprecedented run of winning 10 Final Four national championships in 12 years and won seven in a row. That, that's absolutely unprecedented. Nobody's ever won uh, more than two in a row except coach. And nobody has more than four of those uh, wins, uh, national championship wins in their career. But his life was as remarkable from 75 to when he passed away in 2010, uh, Coach Wood and I used to like to talk about uh, the idea that life is a four-quarter game. Well, his quarters lasted almost 25 years, and the fourth quarter of his life, from 75 to 99, he was involved in the writing of 18 and 19 books, was still uh, teaching and coaching and Uh, taking phone calls from uh, half the influential people around the planet who called and wanted to be mentored by John Wooden. Uh, And uh, obviously very much a a family man, a dad, granddad, great granddad, just a remarkable human being. I think Dick Emberg probably said it best about Coach Wooden when he said that his greatness was only exceeded by his goodness. And that's really what made the man so remarkable. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I did, as a temptation from you, go and Google him, or actually I Googled all-time best, you know, college basketball coaches just to see who came at the top. And of course, I have my bias of who should and shouldn't be in that set. And lo and behold, he comes up at the top. So anybody who wants to know more about it, I encourage you to go Google it. Uh, so- also, uh, I wonder, well, I think uh, Coach K's comment about that is probably as insightful as anybody Uh, When Coach K has asked that question, he'd say, well, there's a lot of debate on who the number two coach is, and he certainly would be in the mix there. He said, but he says, there's no debate who number one is. And and those are Coach K's words himself. That's right. And I'm giving myself away. There are going to be an awful lot of my listeners who actually don't know who Coach K is or care, and some others who say, oh, I can't stand <laughs> that Duke empire. But all right, I've confessed. Here we go. All right. So people say of John Wooden that he was a great coach, yes, but he was also a great leader. Why do you think they say that? Well, I think um, 
it's interesting. He he would refer to himself uh, more likely as a teacher than anything else. But his framework of coaching involved leadership. Um, I, I would say, uh, and we actually share in the book a five-part model for what John Wooden's coaching approach was all about. And leadership was sort of the fourth part of that. He thought leadership came out of a lot of things. Uh, and it basically is the way our model is configured. It starts with the quality of your thinking and the philosophy you have as, as a coach and teacher. Uh, it involved basically the example that you set every day, which is the best way of teaching, he believed. Then the opportunity it created to be an effective teacher and when you're doing those three things, now you're likely in a position of being a leader and being an effective leader. So he, he definitely uh, saw uh, leadership as one of his roles, but it, it wasn't the idea that being a leader was the most important thing that he did. I think he saw being a teacher as the most important thing he did. And, you know, there, there, there's a lot of, lot of writings, uh, you know, in the corporate world these days about the learning organization and and the CEO as a teacher. And I think um, we're, we're still not paying enough attention to that. Yeah, a, a that lot of, yeah. That language has a little bit fallen out of favor. I'm not sure, sure for a good reason, perhaps because we never quite understood what it meant and how to do it well. Um, but I think if you look now at places where people are talking about inclusive cultures and how do we create more of an inclusive space, more of a meritocratic space, I think teaching is going to be heart and center, heart and soul of that one. And learning. Uh, learning. Yeah. Uh, when you tie those things then to the essence of what a teacher really is and how an effective teacher does what they do, um, inclusiveness and diversity and that human connection is so critical and so important. Obviously, you got to be a subject matter expert. You got to know what you're talking about. You have to be a uh, a student of pedagogy and, and things, uh, teaching techniques and all of those kinds of things. But it, it's all about the quality of the connection, I think, with the student, whether they're a, you know, a senior vice president in a company or you're working with a 12-year-old, uh, right? It's all about the connection between the student and the teacher. Yeah, I know watching, we'll get off the topic of teaching in just a minute, but I know watching <laughs> my son going through school all the way through when he was working with a teacher that he enjoyed and felt connected to as a person, he would do amazing things. And if he didn't feel connected, he wasn't going to do very much. I mean, he was going to do enough to get the grade, but it wasn't. he wasn't um, really putting anything in and getting anything out of it. And I think that's not unique to my son. I think that's true for a lot, a lot of people. We follow because of the connection. We trust because of the connection. We try because of the connection. And quite honestly, in organizations, we stay because of the connection. Without that, I'm not sure you get much of anywhere. Okay. Yeah, I, I think we forget some of the lessons very early in our life. I mean, I can remember just as uh, fresh as I said here today, conversation with a fourth grade teacher mm -hmm. that turned my life simple okay. as that. Right. Uh, and I think all of us have have that fourth grade teacher or maybe that junior high teacher or maybe we found them in college or later, or but everybody is influenced uh, in a significant way by a coach or teacher who really cared about them. Right. But it's the care about that really makes a difference. All right. So now let me bring this to my next point. 
One of the things that you say that was the secret to John Wooden's success was that he was an expert on individuals. So tell me what you mean and what was it that was so unique about him? Well, I think it was very much a part of his understanding of how team teams worked and um, and what his definition of team was, which I think we're going to discuss in a little bit. But he had that sense of caring about every single person. When you were with Coach Wooden, he had this incredible ability to focus on you, and it was like nobody else. There was nobody else in the world. His ability to focus on an individual. Uh, give them 100% attention to what they were saying, uh, the sense that he really cared about who you were and what was on your mind and what you were interested in. And uh, and he really took the time uh, to get to know individually who his players were and the people that he, he worked with. Um, I, I think that's one of our challenges in the corporate world today. I, 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 I do this as a little exercise sometimes in in facilitating leadership, I have a, you know, take it, I'd like you to take out a piece of paper and write down all the name of your direct reports. And I want you to tell me two or three really significant things about them. It's astounding how few senior leaders can do that. They do not know individually who their people are, why they matter, what's going on in their life, what's important to them, what they're thinking about, what problems they might be dealing with. He had that sense of how important a single person was. And that was his individual approach, I think, to teaching and coaching. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot on this podcast. I think if there's one thing I would have leaders do everywhere I start with is show every single person who works with you and for you that you care about them as a human being, not in terms of their productivity, about them as a human being. I think it's what the millennials are expecting of the people that are leading them. I think it's what they aspire to do as leaders. And I think it's time we all got back around to that. I'm going to do one story. Then I want to go back to Wooden. Um, I remember working with this guy. I was coaching him and he was struggling with a colleague in a different country. Wasn't going well. They kind of needed each other to both succeed, but they, he didn't like him. Just flat out did not like him. And I stopped and said, so what do you know about him? He's like, what do you mean? Well, how many kids does he have? I don't know. What are his hobbies? I don't know. Um, is he married? Do you even know that? Yeah, I think so. And he stopped mid-sentence and says, okay, I got it. If it was a customer, I would have known those things before I ever went to the meeting because you're looking for the points of connection. I hadn't bothered it with my a colleague and went, flew to the country, sat down for dinner, did that conversation and discovered a whole host of reasons what was going on in the background that he had never even seen. All positive, but anyway, there you go. Not to take over my story. Let's get back to your story. <laughs> so a coach who's on the hook for winning, um, who's on the hook for the behavior and grades and performance of his team and his players, who has a fairly large staff that he's managing as well, um, is needs to recruit a new team. Uh, there are sometimes parents that are involved that have an opinion about what does and doesn't happen. And you've got practices to run and so on. How did he go about finding those moments? What, what did he do that allowed him to connect to each individual so powerfully? Well, one, I th- he, he, uh, he was an absolute master of organization. He had great organizational skills. And those skills came out of the sense of how he viewed the importance of a single day. 
and how effectively he was going to use the time that he worked with uh, in a single day. You know, he had a phrase that the two most important words in the dictionary were love and balance. So he was going to bring that concept of balance to every day that he had. And that also meant (laughs) this is a pretty simple priority. At 530, I'm going to be home having dinner with my family. All right. That was a priority. So he's going to organize his day in a way that he he leaves uh, his office in the gym in time to be home with his family. Well, that meant he knew exactly when his practice had to end. Well, that meant he knew exactly what time his practice was going to start because he had a very precise way of running his practices. Uh, It started on time and ended on time. He spent two hours planning every two and a half hour practice with his assistants every single day. And he had notes on practices that went back 27 years. Wow. That is discipline. He had a game plan for each individual on the team for every practice for the units of the team and for the team as a, as a whole. He also knew how he was going to use other pieces of his time uh, to learn something he needed to know, uh, to do uh, the recruiting that he had to do, to, to work with a uh, player or a student that might have difficulty. He was an absolute master at running his own life and managing his calendar. Tremendous time management skills uh, that Coach had. But it was the sense also of the way he thought about things. He, he went to Purdue to be an engineer, uh, and he had the mind of an engineer. He, he wanted to build roads and bridges for a living. Ironically, that's what he ended up doing his whole life, I think. Building bridges, yeah. um, so he had that sense of, of, of the whole. He, he was a whole part whole thinker, and he understood what the big picture looked like. He was really able to break it down into the small components he was able to pull the components apart, uh, even to the smallest details. He knew he was a bit of a perfectionist when it came to detail and how, how uh, that most big things happen because of the ability to consistently execute the fundamentals and the details of a job or a task or a team. Those were some of the remarkable skills that I think made him so effective. Uh, also, uh, as a communicator, just... Uh, never, never, ever in his career ever gave a, a long speech. Not, uh, not before the game, not during the game, not after the game. That was he felt that was a total waste of time. Uh, we spent all week preparing. If we're not ready to play, there's nothing I'm going to say now that's going to get you any more ready. If we didn't spend this week doing what we needed to do to get ready to be our best come game time. He actually had, had said I heard uh, had heard him say he thought he could have coached many of the games that he coached from from the uh, from the stands. Okay, <laughs> so, talking about getting your team prepared for their moment of truth, if I put it in business language. Yeah, and then letting them do their job mm-hmm. and expecting them to do it at the high level uh, with which they prepared to do it. Okay, I love this two and a half hours of planning how we're going to do a practice. And our practice is not something we do in business day in and day out, though every day is practice. I don't know. Every day is a game too. But um, I love the thoughtfulness of what is it we need to be doing as a team in order to be really successful. And I find very few leaders will take the time to be that thoughtful about what does each person need to be doing as well as what does each unit need to be doing as well as what does the team need to be doing and kind of break that down, make sure people are clear what it is I want you to prepare for. Very clever. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, so let, you mentioned the notion of team, and uh, you know, I know you had a kind of unusual definition of team. So tell me a little bit about that one. Well, um, when you look at his definition of team, which started with the idea that it was a group of individuals, I'm going to go through this and kind of uh, give you the components. I'll give you the whole definition. A group of individuals who are committed to fulfilling roles so that the group may succeed. That was his definition of a team, a group of individuals who are committed to fulfilling roles so that the group may succeed. Well, he really broke that definition down um, in terms of what his levels of expertise were. He was a master at understanding group dynamics. Right. Okay. Okay. He also, as, as we said, had this sense of the individual and took the time to know who his people were, uh, what was on their mind, what was bothering them, how they were doing in their classes, what their families were all about. He was available every day for a, a few minutes before practice. If somebody needed to talk to him, his door was always open uh, to stay in, in touch with him. Um, then the sense, the uh, part of the, of, uh, the definition, the sense of commitment really understand what it uh, what it meant to be committed, but committed to what? The first thing was committed to fulfilling the role, doing the job that you are required to do. I think within the business context today, there's not there's not enough clarity around uh, roles. Uh, you expect people to do a lot of work, but we're not clear enough on exactly what that work is and how it connects to the other work that needs to get done. And people bang into each other a lot because roles aren't clear. Um, so there's a lot There's a lot to learn there. And then he never moved away from the idea that the group must succeed. Uh, we'll talk a little bit. I think uh, we were going to talk about the idea of star players, but uh, the star of the team was the team. And he played with some of the greatest, you know, he had some of the greatest stars of all time, but no one was bigger than the team concept. No one ever, uh, including himself, which was really important. So that sense of the organization and the importance of the organization and the collective nature of the way they thought about what they were trying to accomplish was really, really critical. So th- those components, uh, you know, of what a team is, understanding group dynamics, understanding the requirements of working with individuals, what it means to foster and develop commitment and to keep high levels of commitment on an ongoing basis, uh, the importance and the clarity of roles, which is so important, and never forgetting the star of the team is the team. Yeah. So speaking of roles, you have a great story about Bill Walton and Sven Nader that's about roles. Can you tell us that story? Well, there, there's a bunch of uh, classic stories, I think, connected to Bill and uh, Sven. Sven's a great story in himself. And, of course, Bill Walton is one of the iconic characters from college basketball all, all time, still pretty visible on the, the sports stage uh, these days. But you know, Bill was the college player of the year uh, three years in a row. And after his sophomore season, uh, in which uh, they went, I believe, undefeated and won the national championship. And this was in the uh, in the early 70s when we were protesting in the streets and on the campuses. And, uh, you know, it was Nixon and Vietnam. And there was a lot going on in the world, of which Bill was very involved um, a- a- as an athlete. 
So after the, uh, the end of his uh, sophomore season, when they'd won the national championship and he became a uh, player of the year, he decided he would not uh, cut his hair uh, from the time the season ended to the time they came back the next uh, year to play basketball. Okay. So he shows up at the first day of UCLA's practice. It's the photo day when they're going to be taking team pictures. And he comes walking in with mutton chops and hair over his shoulders and a big beard and basically just walks up to Coach Wood and says he's ready for his picture. (laughs) And Coach said, no, Bill, you know what our rules are. Uh Um, And um, uh, you need to get get this haircut and you need to get that, that beard shaved off. And uh, Bill said to coach, coach, you cannot tell me how to wear my hair or whether or not I can have a beard or not. You don't have that right. And he, uh, coach wouldn't said to Bill, uh, no, Bill, I, I do not have that right, but I do have the right to say who's going to play on this team and we're going to miss you. <laughs> now he knew he had this center named Swen Nader sitting on the bench who happened to be six foot 10, 285 pounds. And uh, Swen had been learning. He hadn't started any game to that date, but coach knew he had a pretty good backup in case Bill decided that wearing his hair long was more important than being a UCLA basketball player, but he didn't. Bill immediately jumped on his bicycle, ran down to the local barbershop, got his hair cut, got his beard shaved, and he was back in time for the team picture. <laughs> and oh, by the way, the next year they won a championship as well and were part of an 88-game winning streak. Right. Now, I, I've worked with Bill a number of times, and uh, we've spoken together and things like that. You asked Bill whether or not he honestly thought Coach would kick him off the team. His answer always says, well, I went and got my hair cut, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> so, and you know, I wonder what's really important about that story is how coach viewed what the responsibilities of a player were. Uh, and this was really about um, his, his view of rules uh, and guidelines mm-hmm. and expectations. Mm-hmm. And he was very clear. He had written expectations that were passed out to the players every year that defined very clearly who they were supposed to be as young men representing this university and this basketball program. He also evolved over a period of years. He said when he was a young coach, he had a lot of rules and a few guidelines. And the longer he taught and coached, the fewer rules he had and the more guidelines he had. Uh, But he was pretty clear on what the rules are and he, he enforced them. Okay. Great. Great. Well, and that was also a time when we had a slightly different view about long hair. And today we see in sports all over the place that some of those rules have relaxed, expectations have relaxed, role models have relaxed as well. Um, the story I was thinking about is Swen came on the team not to be a star player, but to challenge Bill and keep okay, him on his yeah. edge. Yeah. 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 I wasn't sure which, uh, which story you were thinking about there. Yeah. Uh, Swen uh, went to a junior college uh, close to UCLA. Actually, didn't even play basketball as a young kid who came over from uh, from Holland. But uh, a JC coach uh, that was a coach's first All-American made coach aware that he had this incredible athlete nam- named Swen Nader and thought that he might be somebody that coach might want to recruit. And he did when coach saw him. And he thought 
uh, he told he recruited Bill uh, Swen Nader, telling Swen he probably would never play, would never start at UCLA because they had Bill Walton, who was the best center in the country. But coach told him if he would come and play every day against the best center in the country, there'd be a pretty good chance that by the time he graduated from UCLA, he would be maybe one of the better centers in the country and likely would have a professional basketball career. Well, that's exactly how things turned out. Uh, Swen believed every word his coach told him, worked very hard. And he made Bill a better player because Swen was bigger and stronger physically imposing, and ultimately help Bill develop uh, his strength as a player. Right. There's a reason I find that story is fascinating is we often think about, I want to be the best on the team. I need to be the number one on the team. As opposed to think about, I have a role to play on the team and playing that role and doing that phenomenally well makes me a better contributor ultimately and at at the end of the day, and it makes our team a stronger team. It does, right? And Go back to his definition, fulfilling roles exactly. so that the team um, may succeed. Um, okay. So uh, it played out. It just wasn't a definition. Uh, it, it, it played out in uh, in real life as well. First uh, okay. one, yeah. All right, I, we're going to take a break in a minute, but I still have to ask you this question before we go. You know, we have um, a mythology of sports coaches, and we hear all sorts of stories to back this up, of coaches who yell and scream and shout and rant and rave and kick things and, you know, make holes in hotel rooms and all sorts of various stories that we hear over time. Um, and somehow believe that that intensity, that push, is what gets people to perform. What was John Wooden's opinion? Yeah, he, he couldn't have dis, he couldn't have uh, disagreed with that more. Um, he was an incredibly intense person, uh, but uh, all he needed to do was to look at his players, and they could see the intensity in his eyes. Uh, he never really uh, one. He had a no profanity rule on the team. Uh, and his uh, coaches absolutely carried that out. But if you were a player, there was no no profanity. So you never heard some profane tirade coming out of John Wooden's mouth. Mm-hmm. Goodness gracious sakes alive was about the meanest thing that he ever <laughs> said. But when Coach Wooden said, goodness gracious sakes alive, believe me, the, the troops lined up. Uh, and his sense of, uh, of preparation and, and discipline and intensity um, was all he all he needed to have, and he didn't march up and down the sidelines. Most of the time, he sat on the bench because he had spent all week tremendously preparing for the forty minutes of basketball that they were going to play. His opening speech might have been, "Gentlemen, we worked real hard this week. The coaches and I have done our job. Now you need to go out there and do your job. Let's go do our best." That was about the extent of John Wooden's pregame speeches. So it was all about the preparation. So you're describing it as, and I know this is true, looking at the stories and the players that have been phenomenal players professionally afterwards and who still say great things about Coach Wooden. There was enormous loyalty to him. So it helps that you're winning to get that loyalty. But is there something else that kind of built that loyalty? I mean, if if he looked at them, they were going to try to do their best for him. That's incredible. They had to run through well. He loved them. Okay. 
We don't talk about that in business. He'd say, uh, he'd say, you know, I didn't like all of them all the time, but he loved (laughs) them all. Okay. They would do things like, like parents, right? Sometimes our kids do things that we don't like, but that doesn't mean we stop loving them. And he had, he had that sense, right? Two most important words in the dictionary, love and balance. So the quality of the relationship he had with his, his uh, players uh, and he, he just was, he wasn't interested in, in them as basketball players. He was interested in, in them as people, as uh, as young adults who were going to go out into the world and make a significant contribution to the world in which they live, who are going to raise families, who are going to be leaders of communities. That was really what was on his mind primarily, not the fact that he had to win 29 or 30 basketball games this year. He taught, um, you know, the, the gymnasium happened to be his, uh, his classroom, but life was really the subject he was teaching. <laughs> it's incredible. And out of that, it seems so, you know, it almost seems like fantastical that somebody could give that much precision to practice, that much focus, that much faith, that much interest, that much love to the team and win as much with it. Yeah. Well, that, that's what produced the winning. I mean, he, he was so prepared. He, uh, he never talked about winning. He never used the word. Never. His players never heard him use the word win or lose. Never. And I've talked to players all the way back that played for him at South Bend Central High School, and he never used the words win or lose. So what did he say then? Well, he talked about effort. He talked about preparation. He talked about focus. He talked about excellence. He talked about doing your best. He talked about the blocks on the pyramid. He talked about condition and team spirit. He talked about competitive greatness, the enjoyment of a difficult challenge of being your best when your best is needed. And he talked about the process, right? The process of becoming great and good. And he knew that ultimately that would produce um, better scores on the scoreboard at the end of the game. You know, often sometimes I've, I've heard that some of his players say often coach didn't even know who you we were going to play <laughs> on a given night because he really wasn't focused ever on the opposition. He was focused on what his team does. That's a great lesson for business today. Too many teams, too many businesses, too focused on the market and the competition and not focused enough on what they do best and how they need to get continually better and better and better at what right. they do. Um, right. So there, there's a lot of powerful lessons that translate to to running an effective business these days. Okay. Now, I one last question, then we're going to take a break. Okay. Because I have heard you say that he often didn't even know what the scoreboard said at the end of the game. Is that true? Honestly, it is. He really wasn't looking at the scoreboard Um, he didn't think that if the scoreboard was in his favor, that they may necessarily have had a winning night. If they really didn't do their best, if they did, if they weren't working, if they weren't uh, delivering at their fullest level of capability and effort, if he didn't see all of the things that they had worked on and improved in practice that week and what he expected to see because of the quality of their preparation, just because the scoreboard showed their favor, he didn't necessarily think they had a winning night. Vice versa, there may have been some a few nights, not many of them, over a lot of years when the scoreboard didn't show their favor, and he was delighted with the with his team 
because of the level of effort, the way they responded, the things that they did that they planned to do. He didn't think uh, winning made you a winner, and he didn't think losing made you a loser. I love it. All of those other things that they really were trying to accomplish as a team. Now, that concept to me has enormous implications for leading an organization and leading a team. We get so focused on winning as in the revenue stream, not focused on winning as in what's the game plan? Are we doing it at our best? Are we as prepared as we need to be? Um, Are we improving? Are we focused where we need to be focused? We're doing all, we're only looking at that revenue number, the score as the only indicator of where we're winning or losing. And I think that gets us in trouble with our star players, but I will hold that (laughs) for after we come back from the break, because that's a key question I want to talk with you about. All right. My guest today is Len Guerin. He's the author of Coach'em Way Up, Five Lessons for Leading the John Wooden Way. His website is Coach'em Way Up. And as you can tell, he's an expert on the John Wooden way of coaching and spends his time working with businesses to help them understand how to apply these principles in business. When we come back, I want to talk about how you lead a team with star players and have it actually still be a team and a team success. We'll come right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. 
You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Lynn Guerin. He's the CEO of the John R. Wooden Course and president of his own business, Karen Marketing Services. More importantly for today, he's the co-author of Coach Um Way Up, Five Lessons for Leading the John Wooten Way. His website, coachumwayup.com. And coachum is spelled C-O-A-C-H-E-M wayup.com, which I think is important. Okay, so Lynn. One of my most fascinating questions of all times working with teams has to do with how you deal with the star player phenomena. So in business, that typically shows up as one person who is the rainmaker, shall we say, or it may be a technical specialist, or it might be some creative visionary kind of person. And they're often very difficult to manage and their egos are often a little outsized and yet we feel like they're essential for progress. And the, from a business point of view, we let them get away with stuff we shouldn't let them get away with because of that star power they bring or the fear of losing that star power. All right. So back to coaches. One of the things I know about coaching sports is you have to have a team that's going to be run by a star player phenomena and everybody gets in line or you do something else. What was Coach Wooden's approach to star players? How did he deal with this? Well, uh, I think um, he dealt with it very, very well. Uh, he was—he um, had a lot of star players, um, uh, but it's interesting. He didn't uh, how he went about recruiting his star players and the kinds of people he was trying to attract was, I think, part of the magic of how his star players were effective within his system. He didn't really, uh, he really wasn't looking to recruit uh, selfish star players. He brought some of the greatest in of all time who still were team players. They were more interested in winning championships and being part of that championship culture than they were necessarily being part of the star player. It may have been a little lower down in the organization where somebody was sitting on the bench that thought they might be starting or should be starting as opposed to somebody who was a starter that needed to be the star and wanted to dominate essentially the team and all of the publicity Mm -hmm. that was coming from the team. He also had, um, I think, he was always emphasizing uh, the assists the contributions that all the members of the team made to the overall success of the team. Yeah. Uh, he very seldom uh, would praise publicly any of his star players. As an example, he thought, oh, well, they're getting plenty of praise. They're getting it from the press. They get it from the fans. They don't need it to, they don't need uh, to hear it from him. He spent most of his time praising the role players and praising the people that were contributing uh, in a way that he thought really manifested the overall quality of the team. His also his definition of a star player, uh, you know, often it's a it's an individual skill that will stand out. He's a great scorer. He's a great this or great that. Coach Wooden didn't really have that definition of a star player unless that star player was helping to make the other players around him better. 
Uh-huh. A real star had certainly may have had higher level skills in some area, quicker, faster, bigger, better score, better rebounder, all the things that the media would define as making them a star. But if that was not contributing to making the other players on the team better when he was on the floor, um, then, then that didn't make Coach happy. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest players he ever had sat on the bench almost a whole year, his sophomore year, when he would have been starting at any other team in the country because he did not play team basketball and he did not make the players around him better. When he finally came to that conclusion that that was the only way he was going to get off the bench, then some magic things began to happen for him individually. But he was real clear that, man, it was about the team. And he had stars. He had the greatest play, Walton, Jabbar, Marcus Johnson, uh, Gil Goodrich, some of the greatest names all time. But they always saw what they contributed in the context of the team because he wouldn't have it any other way. Most of the key managers that allow that star behavior don't have a game plan for, for working with the possibility that star player isn't there. Most of the time, that higher level of mentality is a little growing cancer within the organization. Mm-hmm. And over a period of time, it does more damage than good. It might produce some short-term results. Uh, it might get you promoted once or twice. Ultimately, it's not, it's not going to contribute to the long-term value and good of the organization. When I look in a, inside an organization and we're doing, you know, our diagnostic analysis to understand the nature of the culture, particularly around inclusive issues or around equity issues or around team dynamic issues for that matter, almost every time that there is a problem, a complaint of any form, it comes down to a star player, usually a rainmaker because they've got the revenue tied behind them, who's allowed for years to get away with things that they shouldn't have got, been gotten away with. And it just breeds terrible things in the organization around them. I swear if leaders would take care of that single problem and not be held hostage by somebody who can crank the revenue stream, we would be in a very different place. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. And there, everything in John Wooden's career spoke to that. But I've seen that so often in so many organizations where that, that, that turns out to be the case. And in most cases, it, I think it has a lot to do with the mentality of the senior leader themselves. If they have kind of a star concept around their role as the president or CEO, uh, there's a possibility they'll never let anybody get bigger than they are, right? Yeah. From a sense of importance. But they may allow some star quality people within the organization but, but, you know, what, what messages are they sending about what the company is really all about and what the culture of the company is all about? And, and a single person, um, ultimately, again, I think is, is cancerous long term. Uh, it will not play out well. Right. Well, I can promise you every company I've been in, we could go to that and find the crux of it. And there may be more than one of them. There may be several of them, but there's a whole culture that's been created around them that is not a good thing. And it is causing you to lose talent you don't want to be losing and a bunch of other things you don't want to be doing with. So at any rate, it's fascinating. But you understand the temptation 
Because in business, I've got to keep that revenue going or we're in trouble. Like there's not a lot of margin here. We got, you know, I've got to keep it going. And so the temptation, the fear is that if I bench that player, then they're going to leave. Well, I, that's, I, I think that's a leader that isn't thinking clearly enough about their business and the alternatives they have to create revenue. Um, I, I think it's laziness on the part of a CEO to have that exist within the company and be literally, when you say, be held hostage to that star mentality, uh, that's a leader without enough alternatives and not doing enough thinking yeah. about their business and the other talent. They don't know enough about the, uh, the rest of the talent pool and how that star mentality might ultimately be able to be replaced with other players or other strategies or other ways of, other of ways winning of the game they're trying to win. Okay. All right. So in Coach Wooden's world, the star player would have been recruited because they were willing to make the rest of the team stronger or better because they were not terribly selfish. And then we're not going to over pump their ego, at least on the basketball court and in practice from the coach's point of view. Is there anything else that he did to help the star players understand their role within the team was not outsized? And he emphasized the assist. I got that. Anything else? Well, I think um, I think the way that he treated uh, the, the concept of w- with which he treated and communicated with all the players on the team. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I often hear him say, if you're treating everybody the same, then you're not being fair. Uh, uh-huh. Because basically he tried to give people the treatment they earn and deserve. Yep. And, and because he understood them on an individual basis, he was able to respond at that level. So, you know, a guy could be scoring a lot of points at night, but if he's doing some things to create really bad chemistry on the team, uh, he's ultimately going to hear about that. And he's going to hear about it properly. He's going to hear it one-on-one. He's going to hear about it in, in private. And, oh, by the way, Coach thought that uh, even for the star player, that the one tool he had uh, that really worked well was the bench. <laughs> and sometimes he put the star player on the bench. Yeah. He also uh, also knew that uh, one of the worst things that could happen uh, to you as a UCLA basketball player was you didn't get to practice. And he he occasionally would ask people to leave practice, hmm. throw them out of practice, if you will, not literally. But that idea of game time, right? Ultimately, if I'm a star player, what I need is the opportunity to shine and John Wooden knew that the ultimate tool he was working with was <laughs> minutes on the game, right? Right, right. So right. he had that bench. He always had that bench as an ally. Okay, okay. It's interesting. You said if you treat everyone the same, you're not treating people fairly. And I talked to so many leaders who believe that I am equitable. I'm fair to people because I treat everybody the same. And I say, no. That's the wrong thing. What you're doing then is treating everybody the way you want to be treated, which is also bad advice. Yeah, You need to treat people for what that person needs, wants, and has earned. Again, go back to understanding things uh, and people on an individual basis and the situational awareness that they need. Uh, of any given, uh, you know, set of circumstances. That's great. That's great. All right. Before I totally run out of time here, I want to talk about the pyramid of success. And it's sitting 
if you're listening, looking at this on video, you can see it on video right behind or a quick glimpse there for those who are on video. If you're on audio, I'm sorry, you're out of luck on this one. But it's a lifelong model that Coach Wooden developed about what leads to success. And there's many components. So can you just kind of walk us through what's in this and how this thing works? Yeah, um, it, it is. Um, it's something that he began uh, very early as a young coach, ultimately uh, built it uh, to be a better teacher. Uh, and he built the pyramid, though, starting with the definition of success. And that's really key because the pyramid is meant to ultimately accomplish success as he defined it. Okay. And the four key components of, of that, are, I believe, are life transforming Uh, having us really have a clear definition of success in our life, in our company, for our children, for our families is critical. And John Wooden's definition was success is peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction and knowing you made the effort to do the best of which you're capable. Four key areas, and I'd run even a quick diagnostic, I wonder with you if you thought about your own life and you thought about these four words, peace of mind, self-satisfaction, effort, and capability. Are you at peace? Do you have that sense of self-satisfaction? Do you really feel like you're giving your best effort based on the capabilities you have? If you do, you're going to feel pretty good about yourself and and what you're doing and what you're accomplishing. And um, he had this, the definition for a couple of years, it wasn't quite doing what he wanted. And then he went to work for 14 years 14 years to put his definition of success behavior on one page. I I mean, I never get over that. Uh, Challenge any executive. Give me the best eye you ever had, best idea you've ever had. I want you to work on it for the next 14 years. And oh, by the way, I want want you to get it in one diagram on one piece of paper. Okay. (laughs) Take on that challenge. And oh, by the way, he then lived the next six decades following these principles every day of his life. Um, he built a pyramid from the bottom up. He started with the key ideas of industriousness and enthusiasm, uh, industriousness, hard work, and careful planning. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, we've defined him as a very careful planner. And enthusiasm, you got to love what you do. It's the quality of your attitude. You can never ultimately achieve your peak level of work if you really don't like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So continually matching that up within your organization and getting people in those roles, right, uh, where they really like what they're doing and they see the contribution they're making. And then the things he put at at the three blocks he put at the bottom, uh, and he had a phrase that when you add others, you add strength. It's a really important idea. When you add others, you add strength. It's a question you have to ask about your relationships, your organization. Anytime you bring somebody else into your life, onto your team, into your company, does that person add strength to the overall group? And so friendship, loyalty, and cooperation, the quality of your relationships, loyalty at the center of the foundation of this pyramid. Wanda, where has loyalty gone in our culture? Gone. Right? It's gone. Uh, that may be the, the block that impacted my life more than any other. I was a third generation abandoned son that fathers in my family had walked away from their boys for 110 years. And John Wooden's teaching uh, of me of what loyalty was really all about and the idea that it primarily was about self-respect, 
mm-hmm. was transformational. Oh, wow. Uh, and we can't respect ourselves if we're not loyal to someone and some things. And then his, his definition of cooperation. Uh, listen if you want to be heard. Be more interested in finding the best way than having your own way. Uh, I was in the General Electric organization for a number of years, and Jack Welch spent, I think, $6 billion on an effort called Workout. Um, that was all about taking the work. That was a combination of industriousness and cooperation, right. finding the right. best way to do things, not you know being so caught up on the way to do that. So these 25 blocks that come together in a very powerful way to define human behavior um, at the top of his pyramid, competitive greatness, the enjoyment of a difficult challenge and being your best when your best is needed. That came out of his dad teaching him, never try to be better than someone else, but never cease to be the best that you can be. Great. That is a transformational idea for children. Yeah. That's fabulous. Lynn, you know, sadly, we are out of time, and I think we could spend hours talking about the pyramid of success and what's in that. And, you know, and you can read, look at that and say, well, geez, loyalty is an old-fashioned word. But when you go back to his definition, there's an element of it that still is a really, all of each of these are really important concepts that maybe we should get back to. I love this notion of self-respect and loyal to someone or something. It's a great concept. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Lynn, thank you so much. Lynn Guerin is my coach, my guest today. He's the CEO of the John R. Wooden Course and President of Guerin Marketing Services. The book I highly recommend is Coach'em Way Up, Five Lessons for Leading the John Wooden Way. And check out more at Lynn's website, coachemwayup.com. Wanda, they could also look at uh, the johnrwoodencourse.com where we have all the tools and materials and a lot of the background and philosophy on all the things that we do. The johnrwoodencourse.com as well. Okay, fabulous. Thank you very much. And then join us next week for more wisdom in getting out of your comfort zone. And if you'd like to know more about how to implement these ideas or stretch yourself in general, check out our new services at outofthecomfortzone.com. Join us next week for more. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 